Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 36. You know, you just gotta start, and your land will decide what is best for your farm. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardage. On today's show, we have Desiree Nelson of Nelson Grass Farm. They raise pastured pork, pastured poultry, and pastured eggs on their farm, as well as a few other species on their journey. Before we talk to Desiree, can you do me a favor? Go to grazinggrass.com and sign up for our email list. We are busy working to improve the website and make it more useful for the community. Let's talk to Desiree. Desiree, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited to have you on today. Thanks for inviting me. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your operation? Um, well, I guess ever since I was young, I wanted to work with animals. And I didn't necessar- necessarily know it was going to get me on a farm. But um, I learned pretty quick out of college that I would work with any animal. So. Um, I didn't get that dream job that everyone thinks they're going to get right out of college. But um, I started working with goats um, and research goats at the University of Minnesota. And that kind of got my feet wet in the whole area. On our farm, we, uh, I guess we're just another pasture rotating farm. Um, We started with laying hens and broilers and we kind of went all out our first year we also did turkeys lamb and had goats Um, we've kind of pared it down a little and added some cattle into the mix Um, we also did pigs we've done pigs since the beginning how long have you been raising your pastured animals Uh, we started our farm in 2012 and six years prior to that, my husband and I uh, managed a sheep farm together. So, and that was after the university for me. Oh, yes. On the sheep farm before you, you started your own farm, were you rotating the sheep at that point? Or was it more a stick, set stocking rate or more conventional? Um, They were rotating they weren't rotating that very very much before we came on and that was one of their main goals that they had so we were using the flexi net and moving them around on their pastures and you got an opportunity to start your own farm how did that process go well the farm that we did work at it was always for sale for commercial use so it was never a long-term permanent plan and then once my husband and i started working together and we could tolerate working with each other (laughs) and then also with starting a family uh that was just the lifestyle that we wanted to choose so and in the process of learning as much as we could about farming because neither of us had the background while we were at the sheep farm we you know came up with our our opinions on farming and how we'd like to do it. And uh, we just kind of took a leap of faith that we could do it ourselves. So. So that first year when you 
got your all's farm. What did you raise on that farm? Or what did you raise that year? Sorry about that. So we started with 50 laying hens. We raised them up from day-old chicks. We did um, two batches of 100 broilers on pasture. I think we had 12 turkeys in three bottle-fed lambs that we bought. And then we also had six doe, goat does that we had bought and we're using to, our, our plan was to modify our woods over into pasture land. So, oh, and then also pigs. I keep forgetting the pigs. <laughs> oh, yes. So you jumped in with both feet. Yeah, we um, pretty much, we learned our way of farming from Joe Salatin, um, basically, he was one who was wanted to educate on his type of farming, and that was the easiest place for us to learn. And we're like, oh, he's doing it. Let's do it. We'll just do it all. So There you go. Speaking of Joel Salatin, where are you located? I don't know why he made me think of that, but I think about Virginia for him. But I don't believe you're in Virginia. No, we're in East Central Minnesota. So it's a little bit different than Virginia. <laughs> Yes, it is. How did that woodland reclaiming process go? Um, not very well. It was a lot of work. Um, we had to basically cut in fence lines every time we were moving the polynet fence through the woods. And it was just a lot of work dragging that net through there in the heavy brush. And the goats loved it. But we happen to have moved into an area that has problems with liver fluke parasite. And we ran into troubles with that with our goats. Oh, no. After about four years, we ended up just stopping with the goats until we could focus more on some better genetics to, to bring in to have better parasite resistance there. Oh, yes. Are goats something you plan to add back later on? I would like to. I really like the goats. And we do have a lot of wooded, brushy areas. And we also have the invasive species, buckthorn, just everywhere. So, and they really love eating buckthorn. I know for me, the the goats are one of my favorite animals on the farm just because of their personalities. They They're pretty humorous. Yeah, yeah. After working with them at the University of Minnesota, it was... You know, I just started to like goats from there and then slowly started liking sheep after working at the sheep farm. So, Oh, yes. You have the goats running in the woods. Did you put your um, pigs in the forest as well? Yes. They weren't where the goats were just because it was so, so thick. So there really wasn't any vegetation on the ground for them to consume. Oh, yeah. And it was mostly popple trees. So they're there wasn't any like acorns or anything for them to benefit from. So we kind of had a open area and a small open field that had young popple trees starting to come up around it. So we had a good mix of shade, shelter, and then plenty of grass and forage for them. And are you continuing to do pigs till today? Yes, we are. Yep. Are you doing farrow to finish? Nope, we buy feeder pigs. So each spring we do, we buy in feeder pigs, raise them till butcher. And basically we're trying to not have too many things in the winter here in Minnesota to have to manage. 
So we only have the laying hens and then the cattle now over winter. I believe that's a, a good plan. At least I know based upon what I see about your winters, I have no desire to spend winter there. <laughs> of course, I'm in Oklahoma. Our winters are much better. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we wonder why we didn't try to go more south when we were looking for farm, but we were looking for cheap, so. <laughs> you have to work with what you can. Yep. Has the the pigs operation continued throughout about the same size or have you increased in size? Have you changed any management principles with it? Um, for the most part, the the pigs have stayed pretty much the same management wise. We've, you know, tried several different shelter types for them just so they have some additional shade or a space to get away from the rain when it's raining. But like our first year, we started with eight pigs. And then um, this year we will have um, 33 pigs. So it's been a slow, a slow increase for us, but it's primarily just on uh, the availability of finding the feeder pigs. And then um, that's what we sell pretty easily. So do you look for certain genetics for your feeder pigs or certain breeds? Um, we're not too picky. We're more picky on how they're raised. We just, we'd like them to have some sort of outdoor management, not just come out of a barn and then us put them outside and shock them. Oh, yes. We've raised Tamworth, um, Red Wattle, Crosses. I mean, most of them have been Crosses, Berkshire, um, just kind of been all over the board it just it changes with every farmer that we find you know and then they decide to stop raising pigs and then we got to find a new farmer so and you're able to locally source those yes so far i don't know at some point we might have to start looking outside of our area it's getting harder and harder and are you direct marketing them to customers as holes and halves, or are you selling by cuts at farmer's markets? Um, so we do the custom holes and halves, and then we also sell them retail cuts. Um, we don't do any farmer's markets, though. We do um, delivery. Oh, okay. So I I have like a driving, a driving route where I do um, drops and meet people and is that a route you w run like once a week or once a month? Um, so I'm delivering every week. So I have two different routes in the Twin Cities metro area that I alternate every other week. And then um, I also have just a local one here to Mora, which is about seven miles from us. And then also to the St. Cloud area, I go there once a month. They're about 45 miles uh, west of us. Very good. With the the pork, I, you're obviously delivering poultry too. Tell us a little bit about your journey with poultry and how it went. Um, well, we started with laying hens. So we were raising the 50 laying hens that first year. And then we did the two batches of broilers. And... Um, we slowly worked up to about 300 laying hens, kind of made a big leap to 500 when we found a wholesale account. And then our broilers, they just, we've 
kept um, increasing them as much as we can, as much as we can sell. We don't get too aggressive with our numbers. So this year we're raising 1,500 broilers for us to to sell directly, no wholesale accounts. On your poultry, uh, just continuing down the path where we, we kind of went with the pork and the processing and selling. Are y'all doing on the farm processing or are you taking them to a processor? No, we are not doing the processing. So we go to a USDA inspected processor that's about an hour from us in which we're actually pretty fortunate to have one that close here in Minnesota because there's not that many. Um, so Very good. I, I know that's a struggle in our area having a processor close enough that's willing to do um, poultry or rabbits or turkeys. Yeah. Yep. With your laying hens, how are you managing those? What are, what kind of shelter are they in, et cetera? So we started out with something like the Salatin's Eggmobile, but as the flock got bigger, we kind of modified what we could. Um, my husband pretty much can build whatever he puts his mind to and then whatever um, supplies that we have on hand basically determine what we build. But um, we call it our egg train. So we basically have, it starts with a trailer with a water tank on it, a 275 gallon tote. And then behind that is our original Eggmobile, which is all nest boxes now. And then behind that is three hoop um, shelters and they're just open on the bottom and on the sides they just have a roof for a shelter and the roosts inside so and then we move that around on pasture we move them about every four or five days to a quarter acre is what we put our poultry net up with your laying hens and the egg train, do you have any livestock guardian animals with them? Um, we have two dogs, but they don't stay with the birds. They're free roaming. Oh, okay. So they just roam over your, your farm. Yep. And you mentioned you got a wholesale account. So what kind of ratio are you looking at on wholesale eggs versus how many you retail? Um. Well, that... That bigger wholesale account that we did have, we did drop it this year. Oh, did you? So last year, we probably maybe sold a quarter or a third of our eggs to wholesale. And then we were also raising uh, broilers for them as well. And we raised a thousand birds for them last year and about 800 birds for our, our own direct marketing last year. Oh, okay. On your layers this year, are you retailing all the eggs? Um, we're doing them direct to our customers. We have two smaller retail stores. Right. One is just like a farm stand, and then one is just a, a little local shop. Um, I would say it's probably maybe a quarter of our sales or less, again, are going through those retail shops. Very good. And jumping over to your uh, pastured poultry, are you using chicken tractors with those? Um, we are currently using range coops. So we got two different design range coops on our farm right now. Um, and we like that. 
And I think we're going to come back to those chicken tractors in a little bit on the overgrazing section yep. to dive in a little bit deeper about those. On the turkeys, you, you did turkeys for a little while, but you're not doing them now? No, we did. We raised turkeys for about three years. So kind of with deciding to get out of the goats, we decided to stop doing turkeys, at least temporarily, just to kind of focus on the laying hens, growing them to a bigger flock and um, growing our broiler flock. So it just, we had too many things going on. And then with addition with the pigs, you know, moving them every week on pasture, it was, we just had too many things that we were trying to grow. And uh, my husband has pretty much worked off the farm whether it's been full-time or part-time the entire time. So we're always strapped for time there. And I do get that about um, scaling back on enterprises. My wife tells me all the time I have too many irons in the fire. <laughs> I think it's a common farmer thing. <laughs> I think you're right. Now, you didn't start out with lambs, I don't believe, but then you added lambs later. Um, our first or second year, we raised three bottle lambs. Oh, yes. And then we were just, we knew that we were having the issues, the issues with the liver fluke with the goats. So we didn't want to invest in buying ewes and then having issues also. So we just had never expanded the sheep. Do you find uh, your customer base is interested in goat meat and, and lamb? Yes, they're always asking why we aren't raising all the other animals so they can oh, just yes. have a one-stop shop. Very good. Now, when you're moving your poultry, we kind of touched on this earlier before we started, um, that grass can get too tall, and you have a few beef cows. So what are you doing with your uh, few beef cattle? So right now we just have one cow and a heifer and then a steer. So basically we're utilizing those to trim the grass ahead of our chickens because especially in the spring, our grass will grow so fast and in, in the really fertile field, it'll be three, four feet tall and we want to put three week old broiler chickens out there. Well, they don't really do that well on that tall of a grass. Um, we don't own any haying equipment, so we hire our neighbor to custom cut hay for us uh, once a year. But we're kind of at, you know, when they can do it, we have to go by their schedule. So we wanted, since we didn't have the sheep and we didn't, weren't going to be getting in the goats and they're not really grazers anyway, um, we decided to get a small cattle herd at least to provide our family with some beef and then utilize um, the grass better. On your jumping back to the broilers, uh, what breed are you using? Are you using Cornish crosses there? Or are you using a slow grower? Um, we're using Cornish cross. We have raised the Freedom Rangers in the past specifically for that one wholesale account. Yes. But, um, we like the Cornish Cross, just the efficient efficiency and the economics of them. And you, you mentioned the Freedom Ranger, and you raised that for a wholesale account. So maybe you you didn't get the opportunity. But did you ever have any feedback from customers on 
Freedom Ranger versus a Cornish Cross? Um, we never sold them direct to our customers, so um, I guess I couldn't say for right. sure. That's what I thought, but I just wanted to check. What are some challenges you all have had with doing your grass farm and your different livestock species? And I know we've already mentioned the liver flukes as being one. I would say just the ability to grow enough to get to a point where you start making money. We're so disadvantaged that we just, you know, we never hit the scales of economy when we're small farmers. And it's just like, well, how how long do we keep working this hard for a little? So I would say that's kind of trying to balance that. And when you get to the point when it's more than just you and your husband trying to do this, or do you try to hire someone, but then you're hiring someone and they're taking all of your profit. And, you know, it's just, it gets hard because you can't, you know, charge $7 a pound or at least not in our area for chicken. So that's definitely an important consideration there. I, I struggle with, I would love to do some uh, pasture poultry, but in my conversations with people here, at least in the area I am, the customers are not willing to pay that price. Now, I'm an hour from Tulsa, so if I start going closer to Tulsa, that might change. But then that gets to the thing, and my wife says I have too many irons in the fire. Yeah, yep. We do have that advantage of being about an hour and a half from the Twin Cities metro area. So, I mean, that's primarily where all of our customers are. Oh, yes. And um, that has that has been beneficial. Oh, I imagine so. Yes. Where do you, or what's your goals for the next few years with your farm? Well, basically just continuing to grow our customer base as best as we can. We can. Um, this past winter, we finally got an online store on our website. We've had a website, you know, since day one, but we didn't have an operating online store. And we're hoping that that will help sell more and spread the news that we are a farm and available to sell. And so, yes, I'm sure that should help. Do you have like an email list you send out to your uh, customers or some way to build those relationships so they come back more? Yes, we've had an email list from the beginning. We've done pretty good. We, you know, the first year our customers were our friends and our family. So, and basically from there, we've just grown based on referrals and very slowly. I mean, that's helped, that's helped us grow the farm slow um, and not get too overwhelmed with all the tasks, just the two of us. Yeah. The email list has definitely been really important. And I send an email out every week, has a little farm update, some pictures from the past week. Um, you know, on the farm activities, and then it's basically a reminder to order. <laughs> yes. Do you find that your customers follow your social media accounts as well, or they mainly rely upon your email list? I would say I have a mix of both. I have um, a handful of customers that will follow us, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram. But then there's some customers who, you know, they just whether they're of an older generation or they're just 
boycotting social media altogether, that the emails are really important for those people. And that makes sense to me. Yes. Well, Desiree, it's time for our overgrazing section. And we've already alluded to what our maybe more than just alluded to, we said what the topic was going to be. We're going to talk about chicken tractors and your progression with them. Yeah, so we've used four different types of broiler pasture shelters. We started with the Salatin pen, the, the 10 by 12, and we basically modeled that after the Salatin's pen. I'm just kind of going to go through the pros and cons of each. Okay. So... I guess just jump in when you have a question or want more clarification. Okay. But um, the pros for the Salton pen are they're easy to build. You know, most of the time you can use them with supplies you have on hand. You don't necessarily have to go out and buy everything at the hardware store, although you can. Um, they're inexpensive to build. They're easier to start on a, sm a small scale. We built ours heavy enough uh, the wind w really wasn't a factor to blow those shelters around. And then I think the low profile also helps with that. And then one thing like with predation, you know, you have about, we would put about 75 birds in a pen. And if you had something get into one pen, they only were able to get to say 75 birds at the most, unless they were going to go cherry pick from every shelter you had in the in the field whether it was a few or an, a lot you know predation is never fun right so right. those were the pros that we we liked on the salatin pens the cons which i have a lot for um they they tend to be heavy and hard to move so for me that was it was always difficult by the end of the summer, I was nice and strong, but oh, yes. in the spring, it was, you know, hard. And then we got to think about as we get older, you know, are we going to be doing this when we're 60, moving, you know, how many shelters on pasture? Um, for us in Minnesota, they were hot in the summer and then they were cold in the spring. So it was hard to extend our seasons to grow more birds. It was hard to get the chickens out when they were ready for butcher. Um, we did it a little bit different than how the Salatins, they have removable panels on the top of their pens. Um, my husband built ours with like flaps. So the, the steel panels would flip up and it was basically me or the kids in there crawling around and herding the chickens into um, the, the, the gated areas, I guess. It took us about five minutes to to move those one shelter of 75 chickens and to feed them and, and fill their waterers. And then you also had to check and fill feed and water two or more times a day, especially as they were getting older. You know, we would have two buckets of water on top of the shelter to feed to, you know, for their water supply. But as they're getting bigger and it's hotter, they're consuming more. So you're just having to go out and do more labor. Um, when we first started with the, the Salatin pens, we were having to, uh, we just had like a range feeder in there. So we had to take them out before we would move them and then put, place them back in. So my husband did make some hanging feeders for in there and that made that a little bit more streamlined. 
Um, you can't really see all the birds really well in there. They can go toward the back of the pen and you may not get a good look at everybody. Um, and I think, I think that was pretty much it for the cons. <laughs> <laughs> and where did you go to after the Salatin spin? So we did a modified hoop coop. So the same 10 by 12 footprint. Oh yeah. So we wanted a little bit, a little bit better ventilation and it was nice that we could walk into those. My husband kind of designed his own where he used, I believe it was one inch PVC pipe and he used that to make the hoop instead of say a cattle panel because he had originally made a cattle panel type hoop and it was just so it was so heavy um mainly because of the wood i think he used and what we had on hand that we couldn't even move it they just had better ventilation for their for their pros uh we could attach a plastic or tarp on the ends if it was cold for more protection. They were a little lighter and a little bit easier to move for me. Um, and then it was more shade and they were cooler in there. I think the ventilation definitely helped oh, yes. keeping them cool. The cons were they could be moved easier in the wind. We did have the ability to anchor them down, which we did a couple times when we, when we knew the thunderstorms were coming, but, um, we never had any big disasters with our hoop coops. Um, I think we're pretty lucky in our fields. They're pretty protected woods all the way around. They're not very big, great open areas. So when they did get moved, they maybe moved a foot and all of the chickens inside were not in the way. So <laughs> another con is the tarp that we use on it only lasts about two years. And it was just uh, the run-of-the-mill tarp, nothing fancy or whatever there. And basically from the hoop coop, we moved to mobile range coops, basically just to move more than 75 chickens at a time with, with each move and to get more efficient as our numbers grew. And how are you liking it? Um, we like the, the range coops. So we purchased a mobile range coop through Cobb Creek Farm. They had um, worked together with Polytex to make a 20 by 36 foot shelter. The thing with that, like it was easy because you just got the kit. There was still some items that we had to uh, purchase to put it together, but it was easy just to get the kit. I think we were kind of, at least in our area, um, nobody else had a big range coop for chickens. So we couldn't go and look and see. If, and for my husband, Ryan, to to design his own, you know, shelter that he could build off of it. So it was just easier to buy the kit and have it all, you know, determined for us. Another pro is you can move 400 to 500 birds in 10 minutes and feed them as opposed to 75 in five minutes. Um, they're all set up with automatic water. So that's really nice. Um, you can still have issues where the water may not be working and the birds will run out of water, but for the most part, you're not running out of water. We can still do this job with one person. So my husband bought a winch. So we can use that winch to pull the shelter. We use a long extension cord so we can walk back 
toward the end of the range coop to be able to make sure we're going slow enough for the birds walking or that, you know, nobody's getting trampled or whatnot. Also, one thing with the range coops that's nice is they have a rubber flap in the back. So the birds aren't, you know, if they do decide that they don't want to walk, they just, you know, sweep out to the outside and you just pick them up after we're done. And then it's really nice that you can walk in with the birds and, and look at them. Oh, yes. Although if anyone who walks with chickens knows it's pretty annoying to walk around in chickens. So that was pretty much the pros. Um, and then, of course, I got a long list of cons for this, the mobile range coop. It's expensive. Um, you still have to buy some, you know, the lumber, chicken wire, all the plumbing inside of it. Um, I looked into our records and with putting, we put 10 feeders in it and four uh, Placid waterers, it was around um, $8,700 to just to put it together. Um, it's a little difficult to assemble. Not just one person can put it together. To have the automatic water, you need a water source. So... Previously, we had been moving all of our water around in tanks to all the animals. With getting the mobile range coop, we had to put in, we started putting in water line in our fields. So that was definitely a plus. Um, you need a tow vehicle, you know, whether that is a pickup truck, a tractor or something to move the range coop. Probably most farms have something like that. So that may not be a con. Um, we use a skid loader to move ours. So, and then also my husband has created an attachment for the front of the skid loader where the, the winch hooks onto the front oh, of yeah. that. Could a four-wheeler pull it? No, I don't think oh, so. Okay. It's just, it's too, too heavy. heavy for one. I don't think that the four-wheeler would, would get enough oh, traction. Yeah. Although I've never, maybe side-by-sides or a utility vehicle might be strong enough. I guess I'm not familiar with what they can pull i'm not super familiar either but yeah if someone's listening out there and you know the answer <laughs> shoot me a message yeah um another con is is our mobile range coop gets really hot in the summer it has white polyethylene uh, plastic cover on there and we do have a shade cloth but it just compared to the modified range coops that we had built gets a lot warmer in there in the summer. I have heard that some people are using um, the silage plastic so that it's like a total blackout, black on the inside, white on the outside, and that definitely is keeping these big range coops cooler. So I think when we have to replace ours, that's what we'll move to. And the shade cloth is kind of annoying. Um, here in Minnesota, we gotta worry about snow load in the winter. So we don't want to keep that shade cloth on there in the winter because it'll collect snow and then it'll, you know, it'll rip the plastic. It could bend the metal. So we take that off oh, yes. every winter. And we've had problems with storing it just because we don't have a good spot. Uh, we've had mice nesting in it and making holes in it. So that's been kind of annoying. So that's basically it on the mobile range coop. So with that in mind, I think it was maybe a year into it, 
So our second year, my husband built his own modified coop, which we call the Ryan coop <laughs> on our farm, just to differentiate oh, yes. it from the mobile range coop. And it's a little bit smaller. It's, it's 20 feet by 24 feet. And it's also all welded steel together. So my husband is a really good welder. So he used his fabrication talent and we have small fields and they're not very long. So that's, that was, I guess this is another con of the mobile range coop, the bigger one, is we have to move it to the side when we get to the end of our field with birds in it. And it's really tedious to do. Oh, yes. And it kind of bends and adjusts. And I mean, at some point we're we're probably going to break something moving them to the side like that. Oh yeah. So with the welded um, steel, we don't have that issue. Very good. So in these coops, um, the Ryan coop being a little bit smaller, we move, we can move 200 to 250 to 300 birds in 10 minutes. So it's a little less um, birds in that time range compared to the mobile range coop, but I think it's definitely, worth it it also stays cooler in the summer so we are using the a pvc solid white roof panel and they're basically peaked instead of having like a rounded top oh yeah uh and that also helps with snow load in the winter um so we're not wrecking the roofs but that has really helped keep uh the heat out in the summer which has been a nice thing and then, of course, the, you know, the same pros as the mobile range coop. You can walk in, you can see the birds. The cost of building that uh, coop was just under $4,000 for us. And then, of course, the cons with uh, the Ryan coop is it's, it's expensive setup. If you're going to be welding steel, you need to know how to weld. Um, it would be difficult to move farm to farm so the previous shelters you know the salatin pen the hoop coop are all small enough you can put them on a trailer if you wanted to if you're changing locations and that sort of thing the mobile range coop you could you know technically disassemble to bring to a new farm the ryan coop being all welded together you either have to move it like you're moving a house basically down the road, which isn't very easy. So that could, that could end up being an issue if you were to move locations or you're using rented land or something like that. And then a con for both the mobile, mobile range coop and the Ryan coops is that if you're having predation issues, they have access to more birds at a time. Um, compared to the smaller salatin pen and the hoop coops. So I think I touched on everything. So I don't know if you have any questions to clarify anything. To be honest, you greatly surpassed my knowledge of chicken tractors. So um, <laughs> it sounds good. One All thing right. I was looking for <laughs> on your Instagram or website do you have a picture of the ryan coop um yeah i should have on at least our instagram should oh yes i see one here when you're posting this podcast i can make a 
do a post on all the different pens and show the pictures of what ours look like because everybody has their own rendition of like a salatin pen and a hoop coop. So just to, you know, make it easier to know what I'm talking about. I think that's really good. I think the discussion of the chicken tractor is really good. Someone just starting out, yeah, a salatin pen, easy to build, handles a small number, but you start, you start growing, then where are you going from there? And you've really gave us a lot of information mm-hmm. on some possibilities there and, and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So exceeded my knowledge of chicken tractors. Um, I did build a salatin tractor one time and grew out 50 broilers one time to try it. I like doing it. My wife wasn't that impressed, so no more. <laughs> and then I have, is it John? Sh- I'm going to mess up his last name. Shoklovich uh, Farm Marketing Solutions. I used his plans. I have just my backyard hens in a one of those, but they're, they're not big enough for um, if you're growing on any scale. Um, at least the ones I built, you know, because it's like six foot by 10 foot. You can't hold very many birds in there, but I do like that I can walk in it. I can see the birds. So I think you brought up excellent points with all of that. Yep. Those are pretty small. And I believe it's Suskovich. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I mess up his name every time and I need to work on that and just get it to where I can pronounce it because amazingly his name has came up a couple times on the podcast. Desiree, we appreciate you doing that deep dive on the chicken tractors and sharing your knowledge with us. It is now time we transition to our famous four. It's the same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our very first question, what is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? Well, I, I think I have two. I would say initially when we started to farm, it was Joel Salatin's book, Pasture uh, Poultry Profits. So we basically read it like a manual and, you know, based how we started our farm off that. And then, of course, as, you know, we learned and made mistakes and continued, you know, we were able to modify what works well for our farm. And then I would say as we've continued to grow and wanting to be, you know, more successful and have a successful business, um, the group uh, APA, American Pasture Poultry Producers Association, has just been a really great education, um, just a network of members. It's so easy just to go to someone who's been doing this for longer or doing something that you want to do and ask the questions and, you know, we don't have to make so many mistakes to figure it out on our own. Very good. Both of those are excellent resources because I am familiar with uh, the association because I believe I joined it that year. I grew just a few trying to figure out stuff. Mm -hmm. I still made too many mistakes, but It's a tremendous resource as well. Yeah, yeah. Our second question, what tool could you not live without on your farm? I, let's see. I think I would say our skid loader, just because that's what we're using to move our shelters around with. Um, It just comes in handy 
we bring the grain out for our birds close to each of the shelters and gravity boxes. So we're moving those around with the skid loader. And then of course in Minnesota winters, we're using it to plow. You know, it just has a lot of uses that we have gotten a lot of use out of it on our farm. It sounds like it, it sounds like it would be a very handy uh, tool for you to have. Our third question is what would you tell someone just starting out? I would say, you know, you just got to start and your land will decide what is best for your farm. You know, you can read as many books and you can learn as much as, you know, you can intern at another farm, you can do all the things. But once you get on the land that you're going to work, it's going to tell you so much more than what you could read or learn from somebody else's farm. So very true. If you're able to get some of that hands-on experience, it goes a long ways. And lastly, Desiree, where can others find out more about you? So um, I don't even ever think I said what our farm name is. Oh, I, I'm not sure you did either. And I should have asked that. That's my bad. So go ahead and say it now. <laughs> so our farm is Nelson Grass Farm, and we're in Ogilvie, Minnesota. We're about an hour and a half uh, north of the Twin Cities metro area. So our website is nelsongrassfarm.com. We have a Facebook page and an Instagram page. Um, my Instagram is grass.farmer. So, and that's pretty much it. And interesting enough, the reason... I found your farm was because I wanted that grass farmer username. So I found your grass <laughs> farm a long time oh, ago. Okay. <laughs> and um, when I was starting out on this podcast, and it just took a little while to get there. But yeah, I, I was like, oh, that username's in use. <laughs> yeah. Well, Desiree, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your experiences with our audience. I think we'll find it very valuable. Well, thank you for having me. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. You can find the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we encourage you to share our post with others when you find something valuable. We appreciate you sharing about our podcast and helping us grow. Also on the website, you can ask your question. Thank you to all those who've submitted questions. We are working to get them answered for you. Are you a grass farmer and would like to be featured on a future episode of the Grazing Grass podcast? Shoot me a message at go to grazinggrass.com, fill out the form, be our guest, or you can email me at cal, C-A-L, at grazinggrass.com. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it.
You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.